So the theme I would like to talk about this evening is on befriending the mind and liberating the mind. Some time ago, I came across a newspaper article that caught my attention because the headline was, human beings prone to walk in circles. <laughs> and this article described these researchers who took various groups of people and they dropped them in a number of different wilderness locations and asked them to find their way out. And they invariably discovered that without a map or a compass to guide them, that human beings were prone to walk in circles and ending up <laughs> in exactly the same spot they started out from. Now, I actually really wasn't that surprised by these <laughs> findings. Because as human beings, we are prone to walk very familiar pathways, not only in our lives, but in our own emotional and psychological lives, we do find ourselves walking in circles. If you reflect on just the days you've been here, how many times have you found yourself walking or traveling some quite familiar pathways of anxiety or judgment or irritability or blame or aversion or doubt, patterns of thinking and feeling and reacting that perhaps we've walked down a thousand or 10,000 times before. And I think sometimes when we become aware of that, we can feel a little sorrowful when we hear that thought arising that says, here I am again. But we're very rarely surprised. You know, perhaps we'd be more surprised if when we, in those moments when we find ourselves responding to life in new and fresh ways. Now, samsara, the, the word samsara in Buddhist teaching, is this feeling or this sense of being caught or imprisoned in circles of discontent and <clears throat> estrangement and confusion. In fact, the word in Tibetan for samsara translates literally as walking in circles. Um, do you have IKEA in America? Okay, I want to tell you a little story here. <laughs> Some of you have had the pleasure of IKEA. Some of you haven't, may not have had the pleasure of IKEA. But if you don't know it, it's one of these mammoth superstores that sells everything you could possibly think you could need in your life and 5,000 things you've never thought you could ever need. It, it, I'm sure so, IKEA does a very great service to humanity, but um, <laughs> the way it's laid out, and I've got to tell you this, the way it's laid out is you go in the door and you follow a painted line on the floor. And the painted line takes you through cookware, bedrooms, kitchens, living rooms, fabrics, you know. 
and it goes in a circle, which is very fine as long as you keep your eye on the exit sign. Okay. So recently, because my son was having to move house, I'd been to Ikea once before, so I had a, you know, some of a taste of what it was. My son was moving house, and we needed to go to Ikea. So we, we got there with this big van, you know, the whole thing, as everybody does, you know. And, and I said to my son, we need to be focused and fearless. <laughs> and above all, we need to stick to the list. <laughs> so all went well for the first 20 minutes. Then we had to backtrack and we lost the line. And I couldn't find the exit sign. And what it started out is a 45-minute trip. Two and a half hours later, I was there. Oh, kitchens again. Oh, kitchens again. Kitchens again. You know, I mean, a sense of panic is arising, you know, that I am in Ikea forever. You know, I will never get out of this place. You lose the exit sign, you're done for. <laughs> and the other thing I notice is if you see people arrive at Ikea, you know, if you observe people, they have these happy faces, you know, some sense of anticipation, and you get to the checkouts, and people's faces are gaunt, little ashen, you know, their eyes are glazed over, you know. And I, <laughs> I see some of you have been there. <laughs> Well, this, I thought this is a sort of microcosmic view of samsara. It's a lot easier to get into than to get out of. And bear that in mind. So what are we endeavoring to do in insight meditation? Well, we're endeavoring to learn to use the map and the compass. We're endeavoring to learn how to travel new pathways of disentangling our minds and our hearts from habits and patterns of confusion and distress that keep us walking in circles. We're really trying to find our way out of the wilderness and to explore what it means to liberate the mind and the heart from confusion and distress and really to cultivate a mind, a heart, and bear in mind in this tradition, these words are used interchangeably. To cultivate a mind, a heart that's a friend as an ally. Now, this path, this practice has never had any interest at all in annihilating or subduing or suppressing the mind. Although I know that can feel somewhat tempting in the moments when it feels totally wild and chaotic. This path really has at its heart the transformation of the mind and heart. In, Tibetan, in the Tibetan tradition, there's a saying that says, this mind and this heart, it does the bidding of the unskillful and the skillful. This mind, this heart, does the bidding of the wholesome and the unwholesome that used unwisely this mind, this heart, entangles us in these samsaric circles. But that used wisely, this mind, this heart, is a raft to freedom. 
So in being mindful of the mind, and you know, in reality in retreats, you have no choice about this. You are going to come to know your mind intimately. So it's best to do it intentionally and willingly. <laughs> in being mindful of the mind, a good question to really ask of ourselves is what does a wise and a compassionate and a skillful mind look like? Now, there may not be an immediate answer, but it is an important question because it's really, in a way, the exploration of that question is at the heart of this path. It, it's also to acknowledge that a compassionate and a wise mind, a calm mind, a free mind, is not a lucky accident or reserved for an elite few. That, that a wise and compassionate mind is not necessarily arrived through some magical experience or moment, but it's really born of befriending and understanding the unskillful and the confused and the repetitive mind. I think we see over and over again that aversion for our mind does nothing but deepen the habit of aversion. So the first significant step on a path of cultivating a heart, a mind that is a friend, is to replace the habit of aversion and resistance with curiosity, with interest, with investigation. Not to blame the mind, but to understand it. We begin with being mindful of the mind, and we see how hard it is. It takes just a few moments to see, like the mind often feels, not always, but it often feels like a pool of water which has been violently agitated by storms. Thoughts, emotions, tasks, preoccupations, arguments, anxieties, worries. And we see how our attention you know, how disobedient, in a way, our mind is, you know, how our attention, no matter what our intention is, just seems to flit from thought to thought, from past to future, the things we obsess about, the things we fantasize and wor or worry about. And you've probably noticed that very little of these storms are intentional. And sometimes we can really feel quite helpless before the storms. We don't get up in the morning and decide to have a distressed and distracted day. I doubt if anybody has done that. We don't get up also deciding and being able to follow through on the decision that we're going to have an uninterrupted 24 hours of happiness and kindness. Instead, the sense is often of feeling kind of ambushed, ambushed by thoughts, ambushed by emotional storms or preoccupations that seem to sabotage whatever intention we have to be calm, to be mindful. It is also a reality that no matter how helpless we feel, we are not helpless that if we learn to use the compass, if we learn to follow the map, we do find the ways to calm the storm. 
the image that is often used in, in this uh, tradition to describe the, the clear, the kind, the insightful, free mind is, is the metaphor of a pool of water in the forest that receives and reflects everything that comes, but that stays still and calm and steady. Now, as we begin to be mindful of the mind, it's very helpful for us to ask, what do we mean by mind? What do we mean by this word mind? Because we often use the phrase, my mind, <coughs> usually in headlines, and often with a sense of despair. My mind is so agitated, you know, or my mind is so depressed or confused. And the subtext of this is often, I am my mind. I am so agitated, I am so depressed, I am so confused. And we often talk about the mind and think about the mind as if it's a static, unchanging edifice or structure or thing, often to be shunned or feared or, or despaired about. But in just taking a little time to be mindful of the mind, it really should encourage us to question this view of the mind as an edifice, as a structure, as a thing, and it's definitely not static. What we see instead is that the mind is a process. Pali, the, the language in which the original texts were, were uh, transcribed, is a, is a language not of things or nouns, it's a language of verbs. It's a language of process, which is very much a language of life. So instead of referring to the mind, it is actually more accurate, if we think about it, to speak about minding. Minding is happening. I just want to see if you can put this into that frame. Minding is happening. And sense if this is more true in your experience and whether that allows for more possibilities to emerge. We might say that obsessing is happening or fantasizing is happening or remembering or reacting or thinking is happening. But so too can calming, clearing, understanding, liberating be happening. To understand the mind as a process is actually very good news. Because everything in the mind is in a state of change. There is no thought, no, no habit, no belief system that is eternal, that is not subject to change. I mean, we, we, don't we see this in our own experience? The winds of change moving through what we call the mind. Happy thinking turning to sad thinking. Angry thinking turning to more kindly thinking. Anxiety that can feel so powerful and convincing in one moment is a distant memory by lunch. The belief systems that can seem so impenetrable, so defined, 
are changed in the light of new experience. You know, I see this sometimes people come into a retreat and they'll come and they'll say, I'm a really agitated person. And then they have a moment of calm and it's like, where is the agitated person? It is not so impenetrable anymore. We experience the winds of all the different emotions singing in a single day of jealousy, of sadness, of grief, of happiness, of compassion, appearing in the mind. And what's so important to understand is the mind is not separate from what appears if there is identification. What appears then is the mind. Sometimes lasting a short time, sometimes lasting a long time but eventually changing into something else. We can find ourselves delighted by the sound of a bird, by the sight of the sun in the trees, and then a moment later intensely irritated at, at the sound of, of, of a car outside the window. So what do we see as the pro what are we seeing as the process the process of minding within that minding within that process there can be immense pain and anxiety and obsession and rage but there can also be incredible loveliness delight lovely emotions lovely uh, states of mind generosity of kindness and what we begin to appreciate is that this process of minding is existing in a state of potentiality. It's existing in a state of potentiality. That this process of minding is being shaped and formed, sculpted in a way, moment to moment by many factors. Perception and our associations with them. You can hear a sound in the night and a flood of childhood fears starts to run through your mind and we're terrified. We see a rabbit on the lawn and memories of idyllic summer days appear and we're delighted. The mind is shaped by emotions, by thoughts, by, by images, and the mind is too often, I would say, shaped by habit, habitual tendencies, by views, by habits, and without awareness, that's what we feel helpless before the flood of. And that's when we feel ourselves walking in circles, sometimes ending up in places very far from where we want to be. And it can feel impossible, <laughs> sometimes like a life sentence. You know, this is who I am, this is who I always was, this is who I will always be. Now, with the introduction and the cultivation of mindfulness, there does begin to emerge a sense of possibility, the possibilities of walking new pathways, wiser pathways. I think the, the very first gift of mindfulness is the shift that can be made and the shift that is made from a life and a mind that feels to be just governed by impulse and by reactivity and by habit to a life and a mind that is guided by intention, by responsiveness, and by understanding. And that's a shift from a mind that feels like a burden to a mind that is a friend. 
You know, 2,600 years ago, people sat and lived with the same mind that we sit and live with today, and the Buddha really recognized the size of the cloth, the immense distress and conflict and confusion that can be born of the mind. And the Buddha spoke of the mind as being the forerunner of all things, of our, our speech, our actions, our choices, that the mind is the forerunner of our happiness and unhappiness our felt sense of freedom, or our felt sense of imprisonment and despair. And I think the Buddha also really spoke so often of the seeming intractable and stubborn nature of many of our psychological and emotional habits. But he spoke too about how it is within this very mind that we cultivate and that we nourish and we foster an awakened heart. I want to read you a small piece of a poem by Galway Canal. Some of you will be familiar with it. And the poem is called Relearning Loveliness. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower for everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. I think this poem captures so beautifully the potential of this minding. Because in a very real way, in this practice, we are reteaching our hearts. We are reteaching our minds their loveliness. And it is a journey, and it is a practice, and a cultivation. When the Buddha started contemplating his own mind, just as we do, he began by simply exploring and identifying in the winds of all the different thoughts and emotions, which amongst them were skillful, were healing, were liberating, and which amongst them <clears throat> would lead to further suffering and confusion for himself and for others, which amongst them would lead away from freedom, and what amongst his thoughts and emotions would bring him closer to freedom. I think this element of discernment, and Rodney mentioned this last night, you know, the intelligence of mindfulness, and we're not just looking at something in a passive way. But this discernment is absolutely so essential within our own minding to know for ourselves what in this process leads towards freedom and what in this process leads away from freedom. To be able to discern between the skillful and the unskillful the liberating and the binding. This is not talking about good and bad or right and wrong. 
On one level, this discernment can sound simplistic, and yet it is the starting point for us, as it was for the Buddha, for understanding and liberating the heart. Because it is through this discernment that mindfulness engages with wise effort. That we know for ourselves what to cultivate, what it is that is helpful to release, what needs understanding, what needs nourishing, and actually what needs a little fasting. It is part of the map discernment that is a starting point that enables us to stop walking in circles. Now, if you look at your own minding today, your own hearting today, the last sitting, it's probably not hard for us to see that thoughts of judgment, of aversion, of fantasy, of our obsession, really actually do very little to contribute to calmness, to well-being, to compassion or freedom. In reality, these streams of thinking with the emotions embedded in them really do very little but to distress the mind. And you notice how, this is so interesting to me, that when a thought pattern, a thought stream, tends to be less than skillful or helpful, there tends to be a lot of storytelling around it tends to be very prone to a lot of proliferation. And that alienates us from others and essentially afflicts our hearts. You have perhaps seen other streams of thinking today. Thoughts of kindness, generosity, appreciation. And you immediately see the difference in their impact upon our minds, our lives, our relatedness, and also the fact that there is much less storytelling. There's much less arguing, explaining, justifying, all the rest of that. So this is not about, please understand, this is not about placing another demand or judgment upon ourselves that we should only have certain kinds of thinking and judge ourselves for others. Discernment is really about learning to befriend and learning to read the landscape of our own hearts and to teach ourselves, to teach ourselves what leads to distress and confusion and what leads to the end of distress and confusion. Now, in this path, you know, of befriending the mind, the Buddha actually, you know, I know a lot of people have allergy <clears throat> to the word goals, but Actually, you know, this whole path is just, I mean, just to accept that it's peppered with goals. Um, <clears throat> so in this, when the Buddha spoke about befriending the mind, you know, he really put the bar very high because he talked about the mind and its potentiality to be luminous, to be radiant, to be without boundaries, to be imbued with a naturalized kindness, compassion, sensitivity. He talked about the mind that is a friend actually really thinks the thoughts that are useful and doesn't think the other ones, that they don't even arise. So the bar is a little high, but we're working towards it. Now, when we talk about 
skillful and unskillful, liberating and binding. This is not about liking and disliking, pursuing one kind of thinking and suppressing others. It's really, and this is so important to look at what it is we are feeding. What it is we are feeding, what leads to distress or the end of distress. There's a wonderful, I find a very poignant story in the, the Native American tradition about an elder who's out walking by the side of a river with his grandson and reflecting on what he would, what kind of wisdom he would really like to pass on to his grandson. And he, he said to his grandson, he said, I feel these rivers within me. He said, they're like, like energies. He said, they are like two wolves, he said. And one of these wolves is, is thirsting for aggression and territory and power. And he said, there's another wolf seems to live within me that, that is searching, thirsting for peace for connectedness, for freedom. And, and the child says to his grandfather, he said, which of these wolves is going to win? And the grandfather said, it depends which one I feed. Depends which one I feed. Although thoughts and emotions can seem sort of embedded they actually really don't have a life of their own. Our thoughts, our emotions, our habit patterns do not have an independent self-existence. They rely upon being fed and nourished. Now, you can just see this, you know, suppose a difficult thought arises. You have a memory of an argument that you've had with someone. And, you know, all the thoughts of judgment and self-judgment arise. And the work of mindfulness is just really to know this, to really to know this, to know what it arises from, to know its outcome. But if the attention is unwise, we find ourselves feeding it with many more thoughts and emotions. We remember everything we ever hated about that person and why they are so terrible and why they deserve our censure and blame and all the rest of it. And then, of course, we have the thoughts about myself, about why I'm so terrible because I'm so judgmental and so, so worthless, and I've always been judgmental and worthless. Please, you know, we know this story. It's like, you know, it's like if you're having a dinner party and an uninvited guest knocks on the door. You know, you could offer them a glass of water or you could invite them to the table to sit down to a five-course meal. Now, you know what's going to happen if you offer them the five-course meal? They're going to think, this is a good place to return to. I'm coming back here. You know, this is where I get fed. This is where I get nourished. Now, one thing I think we know really clearly is how exhausting all of these repetitive circles are. You know, have you noticed how tired you can be on retreat? And let's get real here, you know. We are sitting around. <laughs> have you ever done so much hanging out? I mean, when is the last time you did this much hanging out? You know, I mean, sure, occasionally we get up and we have a little toddle around, you know, very slowly, you know. 
And then we come back and sit around some more. You know, my son, he's caught, you know, when he was a teenager, he caught sight of my daily schedule. Of course, he's been around me on retreats. He caught sight of my, caught sight of my daily schedule on retreat. You know, he took a picture of it on his phone and immediately sent it to all his friends because they thought this was hilarious, you know. Because <laughs> this is my mom's working day, you know. <laughs> Sitting. Ah, a little walking. Sitting. Ah, a little walking. Lunch. Ah, she's sitting again. And you know, these teenagers, this was kind of like the ideal, the, the idyllic job description, you know? <laughs> and yet we're so exhausted. You know, why are we so exhausted? We know why we're so exhausted. This thinking. I don't think there's anything that consumes so much energy in this life as obsession and preoccupation and speculation and argument. Especially when they don't ever have a different outcome. That's the amazing piece. When they don't actually have a different outcome. Now, this habit of rumination, proliferation, obsession, in this teaching is called papancha. Some of you have heard this word before, but for those of you who haven't, the Pali word papancha, if there's ever going to be one word you ever learn in Pali, this is the one. Papancha, let it roll off your tongue, you know. Papancha. It describes the storms of thoughts and emotions born of associations and memory that surround perception, that keep us walking in circles. This is what we're asked to understand and to calm. This tendency, this habit to ruminate is perhaps one of the primary psychological and emotional habits of vandalism we can engage in. And it makes the mind feel like an enemy. And it so stops us from seeing anything anew. You know, Suzuki Roshi once said that in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. And I think these circles are constantly sort of trying to pin the world down to our thinking. It really obstructs our capacity to see anything or anyone, or ourselves anew in this moment. When we feel imprisoned by reactivity, we feel barred from responsiveness. And it is responsiveness that allows us to walk new pathways, rather than the familiar circles. Notice how this happens. I go back to lunch because it's often the best metaphor to use. If you notice what happens, you, you go into the dining room, you know, you read the sign about what's for breakfast or what's for lunch. That's the start often, isn't it? You know, and then you're standing in the line kind of chomping at the bit, you know, and you've got the mind, most mindful yogi in the world in front of you. You know, and, and you spot, you know, you're about halfway down the line and you spot that there's three peaches left. <laughs> and sure enough, the person in front of you takes the last peach. 
Now, again, it's very important to remember that perception and memory are running the same neural pathways. So what happens when you see that person again? Do you see that person or do you see the person who took the last peach? <laughs> and again, the person who took the last peach. It's like this person is frozen in time and frozen, but actually frozen in our minds. Hmm? How do we see anew? How do we see anew? Now, part of the work of mindfulness, I might say, is actually to clean up the field of perception. It's to clean up the field of perception. Now, first of all, to acknowledge that many of our perceptions are simply very practical and useful. You know, because I know what a glass is and what a glass is for, I don't try and take a drink of water out of the bell. Hmm? It's that useful. I get up in the morning, I actually don't have to learn to drive my car every single morning. So some of our perceptions are simply useful. We know to sit on the chair instead of on top of the fan. This is all quite neutral. This is just working perception. But there's a whole way in which perception as our way of interpreting reality is actually not neutral at all. Because part of per perception so easily links into association, memory, and underlying tendencies of aversion and fear and craving. It seems so automatic. This is not only true in relationship to the world, it's true in relationship to ourselves. If you really look at it, you can see that nothing in this world is actually fixed apart from our view of it. You are not fixed apart from my view of you you know, the person who took the last peach. We have fixed them in a view. We do this quite frequently in relationship to ourselves. I am like this. I remember I've always been like this. Now, proliferation, papancha, and the identification with it tends to reinforce the view reinforces the view because we keep feeding it. We keep feeding it. You know, and very, think about how this works, not only in relationship to others, but in relationship to ourselves, the I am. How often we're kind of like writing a book about I am in our mind, and rarely do we feature as this kind of really incredibly generous, you know, amazing, compassionate person. You know, so often we're the villain in the story. And it is often a story, a view of inadequacy, a view of imperfection, a view of hopelessness. And you know what? It's only a view. But as long as the view is identified with, it becomes our truth. It is like the person who took the last peach has become a truth. We become a truth through reinforcing our view of I am with papancha, with rumination, with proliferation, with endless association and identification. Now, thought here is not the problem. You know, we are always going to have thoughts just as the body has sensation. 
but it is the underlying tendencies that perception keeps feeding off, often unseen, that through repetition wear these ruts, in, not only in our mind, but in our brains. They wear these neural ruts that are become so ingrained, it's just like we easily fall into them because that's what we know, or it's what we think we know. And it induces a state of credibility. Now, part of the work of mindfulness is to question and to investigate these narratives, to question and to investigate these stories. Part of mindfulness is certainly to reframe the narrative, to know a view as a view, a thought as a thought, to really know how we are minding moment to moment, how the mind of the moment is being shaped, how it's being constructed, how it's being formed. Part of mindfulness is to liberate perception, and this is what I mean about cleaning up the field of perception. Part of mindfulness is liberating perception from the underlying histories and tendencies that allows then a fluidity of responsiveness to the moment, to ourselves, to life. Part of mindfulness is the cultivation of wise attention to not add to what the thought, the emotion that has arisen, to know what it means not to feed. When the Buddha describes wise attention, he says not grasping at the perception or the associations with it. That wise and focused and bare attention, of course, is one of the trainings, basic trainings, of meditation practice. And if you take an example of the person who took the last peach again, the sight appears, you know? You just, the sight, you, your eyes catch sight of the person. And so quickly, you can feel the stirring of aversion. You can feel the stirring of memory. And so what do you do with that? Well, actually, you know, you could just come back to the sight to really see that person in that moment. Not the person who took the last page. Just to really see that person as they are in just that moment. A thought arises. It might be a thought of judgment. It might be a thought of blame. And you can begin to feel that sort of inclination, the energy to begin to stir, to begin to feed it. That will turn it into a storm. Or you can come back and you can know, ah, thinking is happening. Minding is happening. Surround it with calm, with spaciousness have the front door open, but to have the back door open too. The thought will arise, but it will also pass. Calming the heart and minds allows for responsiveness, allows, allows the compassion to arise rather than the view. 
One of the powerful aspects of mindfulness is to begin to loosen the grip of habit, not just life habits, but emotional and psychological habits. The more we feed and nurture our capacity to be mindful here is the degree to which we begin to dissolve habit. In reality, habit and mindfulness do not coexist. Try it. Just try it. Try to tie your shoelaces both habitually and mindfully in the same moment. You know, try to eat your lunch both habitually and mindfully in the same moment. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. So really sensing that ally of how by bringing mindfulness, bringing awareness, it is beginning to loosen the grip of these habits that can feel so historical. And part of mindfulness, and we've said this so many times, and we will say it again and again and again, part of mindfulness is kindness. It is the kindness of changing the lens of how we see, how we attend, how we are present in our lives, our bodies, our hearts. The kindness of making room for all things. The kindness that recognizes that reteaching our minds their loveliness is a journey. It's a journey. There's a lot of glitches along the way, but it is truly a journey that is liberating. Kindness allows us to be curious about our minding, about how the mind of the moment is emerging and the relationship we have with that mind. Kindness, you know, kindness is not about observing our thoughts with sort of coldness or hostility, but with gentleness and with care and with interest, concerned with befriending. And this is this journey. This journey of reteaching our mind their loveliness is a, a journey of moving from distress to ease, from confusion to clarity, from entanglement to liberation. And our practice really is to liberate the mind of the moment, to liberate the mind of the moment. It is a practice of great immediacy, to liberate this mind of the moment from confusion, from distress, from entanglement, to really know for ourselves the liberated heart, the liberated mind, the mind of loveliness. So if we take just a moment quietly together. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing.
Thank you. So it's a walking period. We'll come back at quarter to nine for the last group sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.